I'm not sure if the shot is going to go in. Uh, but like I said, my name is Ben Stone. Um, I'm going to tell you guys a little bit about myself, a little bit of context. So I grew up in a small town in northern Wisconsin uh, called Cumberland. I like to call it the promised land. Other people call it Cumberland. Uh, I moved down here in 2015. I was recruited by the Badgers uh, to wrestle. Um, at the same time I was coming down here in 2015, there was a woman who was uh, born and raised, not born and raised, raised up in uh, Manitowoc, Wisconsin, who also came down to Madison, not to wrestle, uh, but actually to play volleyball. Um, we were able to meet in Athletes in Action in 2019. Um, we, met in, <laughs> we met in Athletes in Action. We grew to know each other in Anatomy Lab. You really get to know someone well over cadavers and the smell of formaldehyde in the air. <laughs> In 2020, I went on staff with Athletes in Action, a student ministry at UW-Madison, and uh, Mallory went to go, went to play at South Carolina. So spent a year apart, but in 2021, I asked Mallory to be my bride, and as of one month ago, I got to stare at this beautiful woman for an entire day as uh, she became my wife. Now, and this is good for me, right? But unfortunately for Mallory, she had to look at this. She had to look at a man cry for a day straight. So that has been one of the biggest updates in my life and is one of the people who knows me the best. Uh, there may be some questions, man, why, why has Ben up here? And so Mallory will be able to help me uh, with some of these. So Mallory, am I David Bartosik? No, okay. Am I an elder? Nope. Now you guys are really starting to get confused. Have I attended seminary? No. Have I proven track record of public speaking? No. <laughs> Have I been freed from the power of money? Unfortunately not. Am I an everyday missionary who struggles with money and its power, and I want to honor Jesus with my entire life? Yeah. See, that's why I keep her around. <laughs> All right, jokes aside, we're in a sermon series uh, called The Kingdom of God. Oh, no, we can't skip that step. Yes, yes, let's pray first. I need this. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that um, someone like me can enter to your, into your word, enter um, into this space and just get to learn what it's like to be more like Jesus. Lord, I pray for my words that it would not be for any selfish gain, but that they'd be inspired by you. That if there's any um, false word that comes out of my mouth, that it may lie upon deaf ears. Lord, I pray that this time be glorifying to you um, and that we could get a window into just how much you love us. And pray the things in your son's name. Amen. All right. So the kingdom of God is about a king forming a people living under its reign. And today I'm speaking on the Matthew 6 edition. So in this sermon series, I'm going to be going over uh, one of Jesus' most prolific teachings. Uh, many of you know is the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is actually notoriously difficult to unpack. It's one of Jesus' most known teachings, but it, it has these... Um, Jesus says some pretty crazy things in it. People have, theologians have debated, is, is Jesus trying to overstate certain things so they can show the magnitude of our sinfulness and how much we need grace? Today, my challenge, what, what I'm going to do, is I'm not going to try to domesticate the Sermon on the Mount um, but before we can even dive into Matthew 6, which is in this sermon, we need to give some context to what the Sermon of the Mount is and what it is not. 
So in order to do that, we are going to look at its literary context. So if you guys have your Bibles, if you can open them, we're going to look at the verses and chapters leading up to Matthew 6. We are not going to read them. We do not have that sort of time. But we are going to look at the chapters so we can understand where this sermon lays and what message Jesus is trying to communicate. So we look at Matthew chapter 1. We have the genealogy. We have the birth of Jesus. And that is, that is it for chapter Not that that is it. That is all that is in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we can see that we have the visit of the wise men, the magi, uh, the, flee, the flight from Egypt to avoid uh, King Herod as he is killing children. They return to Nazareth. In chapter 3, uh, Jesus' baptism. John, ba- uh, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. In chapter 4, we can see that uh, the temptation or training for Jesus' public ministry, he calls a few disciples, and then he starts to begin his public ministry. So there's a couple questions we must ask. What is the Sermon on the Mount? Why, why is this? Oh, let me go into one more thing. Anybody know what's in chapter 5? I have to start there. Anybody? This is volunteers. What's in chapter 5? What's that? Yeah, that's right, which is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So that's where we begin. Basically, chapter 1, 2, about baby Jesus. 3 and 4, he gets a couple of disciples, and he is starting his ministry. So if we were to ask Matthew, what is Jesus about? There's a couple critical uh, things that we must see in Matthew 4. This is what Jesus is about. This is what he's doing. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In Matthew 4, verse 23, it says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So when we ask, what is Jesus teaching? Matthew's answer is right here. Jesus is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. So the Sermon on the Mount is good news about the coming of the kingdom. I believe we need to clear up some misconceptions when we hear this phrase about the kingdom. We can see it up in 417 when it says kingdom of heaven. In a kingdom, there is a king who is an authority figure. He is in power. And a king has his people who pledge their allegiance to said king. Therefore, God's kingdom is the realm in which God has power and authority and his people pledge allegiance to him. Now, we know that this kingdom does not solely exist within the confines of our individual afterlives because at one time, God's kingdom dwelt here on earth. In Genesis 1 through 3, God's kingdom inhabited this earth. We were walking with God. We were in right relationship. But in chapter 3, we know that we seceded from God's kingdom. This secession brought forth war, death, death, selfishness, idolatry, pride, and a plethora of consequences since the fall. And since sin has entered the world, the world has lived in rebellion of the rightful authority, God. Ever since the fall, God has sought to reestablish his reign on earth and take back what is rightfully his. So when you see this, this terminology of the kingdom and the kingdom of heaven, this is not for your individual afterlife. This is not your, for you. This is not your eternal destiny. This is what the language of a kingdom means. So, so what is happening here in chapter 4 is that when we read Matthew 4, 17 says, from that time Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. God's not saying, hey, look out, you're about to die soon. 
what he's saying is that from the beginning of creation, since we seceded from God's kingdom, God has sought to reestablish what is rightfully his. And what Jesus is saying here is, guys, God is finally beginning to act. He is finally beginning to take back what is his. And this is the good news. So we ask, how is God going to reestablish his kingdom? God chose to send his son, Jesus, to be the king of this new kingdom. You guys see it now. He's not speaking in the future. He's saying right here, right now, I am the established king that is going to bring forth a new kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus proclaiming the arrival of his kingdom. How is he going to do this? He is going to do this through invitation. This is not a fairy tale. This is not an eye in the clouds. This is not sometime in the future. He is inviting us. I can't say us. He is inviting this group of people that he's speaking to in the Sermon on the Mount. And because it's recorded in the Bible, it's for us too. He is inviting us to be a part of a radically different reimagined reality for what it means to be human. Through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus invites us to to establish permanent residency in God's kingdom. Right here, right now in this broken world, Jesus is saying, come. There's a different way to do this, guys. I know what you've been feeling. I understand. Come, follow me. I will show you. That's why I need you guys to remember, before we get into Matthew 6, and we start feeling this weird, maybe swell of conviction and shame, this is an invitation, and it's something beautiful that Jesus is inviting us to. So that being said, we can finally get into Matthew 6 with this little um, context. So I'm going to read it for you guys. Matthew 6, 19 through 24 says, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on, treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, or where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So this passage of scripture, I believe, has three distinct parts, and this is how I'm going to break it up today. We can see here the 19 through 21 region talks about treasures. The 22 section talks about uh, some sort of analogy I'll be able to unpack. What is the lamp? What is the eye? We'll get to it. The 24, um, yeah, that's, that's a hard-hitting one verse. The way I'm going to bring us through this scripture of verses today is by actually working uh, from the bottom up, not working in chronological order, but from 24 on back. In the first point, uh, I believe Jesus is making um, in verse, is verse 24 is that money has power. Secondly is how money has power. And thirdly, how Jesus frees us from the power of money. So let's begin uh, with the first one in verse 24. So once again, I'll read it. No one can serve two masters, either hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now Jesus is pointed in this. When I was reading one, this is the one that just kind of like wound up and hit me right in the gut. And I, I zoned out on the previous couple verses, but this one, it hits hard. And I would like to present to you today that Jesus might actually be serious when he's making this. After all, um, 
Of Jesus' 39 recorded parables in the New Testament, 11 of the 13 incorporate finances to some degree. Of these, nearly half speak directly about money. For example, the pearl of a great price, the lost coin, and the silver talents. Of the other parables, many also touch on material wealth, the prodigal son squandering his inheritance, Lazarus and the rich man, or the day of the laborers in the vineyard. The use of money is also used in many of Jesus' teachings, the widow's two coins, Caesar's taxes, the rich young man, and Zacchaeus and the tax collector. So what's Jesus' deal with money, guys? Why does he love to preach on money so much? Throughout Jesus' teaching, he is explicitly clear um, about the dangers that money has. And I would like to, um, I'd like to offer perhaps an explanation of why Jesus is doing this. Throughout multiple times in the New Testament, Jesus, New Testament, Jesus posts these warning signs about money. That we, sh- we should be looking over our shoulder, as Jesus is doing for one of the most potent and successful, successful functional saviors that has plagued the people who sat on the mountain surrounding the Sea of Galilee that day, and which is the same functional savior that plagues us today. Throughout Jesus' teachings, he is explicitly clear about the power of money and its innate characteristics for being to camouflage itself. Have you ever heard Jesus say, be careful, you might be committing adultery? You know who your wife is. You know who your husband is. But with money, he is looking behind our shoulders saying, look out for this. This is dangerous. I'll give you guys an example. For the past two years, I've been serving athletes in action. It's a ministry that has the same goal as us as a congregation do. We want to build relationships with people and use that relationship to share the gospel so they may have life more fully. What this looks like for me is I have a lot of individual meetings with student-athletes, and they have, they've given me the ability to, to see into their lives. They've been very honest and vulnerable with me. I would like some participation here. Out of the hundreds of meetings that I've had and the many, many students that I've met with, how many do you guys think have come up to me and said, Ben, man, I just really feel like I'm, I'm struggling with greed. What's that, Ricky? Zero. None. Absolutely none. Ricky, how many of them do you think were quite obviously struggling with greed? More than zero. More than zero. <laughs> One might say many, right? So for me, I'd like to humbly put forth to you, this is Jesus saying, like, hey, this is a warning sign. This, one of the innate characteristics of greed is that it camouflages itself. It's one of those things where the, one of the key characteristics that you're suf- suffering from greed is that you don't think you're suffering from greed. <laughs> I start with this passage first um, because I believe that the greatest threat I have today is my ability to reach you guys. I think that you guys see a 24-year-old come up on stage and uh, you hear the word money and you're already predicting what I'm going to say, where I'm going to go. I've heard this message before. What does this dude know about money, all right? Does anyone feel the weight of anxiety uh, when it comes to inflation? Perhaps the heart swell that comes with a career change, or maybe just we're so financially secure here um, that greed isn't something we think about. Maybe these are only true for me, I don't know. Let's zoom out for one moment, if you're still not tracking with me. Most of us are going to be, are, or have been working professionals in the most wealthiest country that has ever existed in the history of time. Let's acknowledge acknowledge and just be real for a moment, realize the power that money has on our lives, these emotional, this visceral reaction to these things I'm saying. 
If Jesus preaches about money as much as he did, who are we to think that we've evaded its power? I come before you not as someone who knows your hearts, who knows your guys in in your life's workings, but I come here today to show you a man named Jesus who is preaching to a group of people that are so poor that they followed a teacher into the mountains to receive healing instead of going to a doctor. And yet in this group of people, Jesus still uses this very sharp message. He employs this message that is saying money has power. But please remember, guys, this is good news. This is not condemnation. This is an invitation to live a radically different life. And we are being recruited to have residence in this kingdom that is here and now. So to review, verse 24, the sin of greed is different from other sins in the way it camouflages itself. Money has power, and we can only belong to one kingdom. That's verse 24. We're going to take a step back now. Now that we've established that money has power, it's how money has power. It's like, all right, Ben, I get it. Jesus teaches on it. This is a very sharp statement, but like how to address the why or what to do, we need to do how money has power. And this is in this little body of work here. If you're similar to me, I, I was going through, got really confused at what was going on here, went to verse 24, got really scared and realized that I might have to go back and reread verses 22. All right, so I'm, I'm here to help you guys. I'm here to walk us through this. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is this darkness? So what is the good eye and what gives us so much light and what is the bad eye that leads us to darkness? One clue can be found in Matthew 20, verse 15. This is going to be your bonus parable for the day. The parable of the workers in the vineyard. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them out to the vineyard. And he went out in about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I'll give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? He said to them, they said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. So when the evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call in the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired at about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, because they had worked longer, and they likewise received a denarius. When they had received it, they complained against landowners, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the heat all day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, am I doing, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Take what is yours and go away. I wish to give the last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish to do with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first will be last. For many are called, but few are chosen. So we're going to focus on the, or is the I evil because I am good, and what does that mean? Just as Jesus said in the parable, the men who had worked an hour got paid the same as those who was working all day, uh, but because the master was merciful, and besides the fact that it's just his money, he can do what he wants with it, um, those who worked all day grumbled that the men who worked for one hour paid too much. 
And Jesus responded with the words found here, is your eye bad because I am good? Now, what is bad about their eye? What is bad about their eye is that it doesn't see the mercy of the master. It does not see the mercy of the master as beautiful. They see it as ugly. They don't see reality for what it is. They do not have an eye that can see mercy as more precious than money. So let's bring that understanding back to the bad eye and back to Matthew 6, verse 23. And let the determinant of a good eye, um, and uh, let it determine what the meaning of a good eye is. What would the good eye that be that would fill us with light? It would be an eye that sees the master's generosity as more precious than money. In other words, a healthy eye, being clear vision, a clear perception of reality, suggests loyal devotion to God, while a bad eye, being impaired vision, leads to moral corruption of the heart. So you're saying, okay, Ben, I see it. The eye is how we see things, how we interpret reality. It affects our hearts because those laborers, they were grumbling against their, their co-workers while they didn't see the mercy and how gracious the master is. What does that look like in everyday life? What does that look like for me? One of the reasons we need so much money here in America, here, that's not how that works. There we go. One of the reasons we need so much money, one of the reasons that I, I'll say I, I can, I can own up to this one, that um, I don't give as much as I should is because it's my significance. And I'd like to wager that it might be our significance. Money allows us the ability to go certain places. It allows us to eat at certain restaurants. It allows us to manicure our homes. It makes us so we're able to have incredible hobbies that we have fun doing. Or it allows us to update the things we already have. Uh, but all these things work in tandem to make us feel important. Like the men who did not see their master as merciful because of the wages of the co-laborers, very similarly, we look around us and we have a totem pole. And we know right where we sit. It's not explicit. We don't ask people, hey, how much money do you have? But you see where they are, where they spend their time. And you know who's above you socioeconomically, and you know who's below you. But instead of it just being as simple as that, knowing who's higher or lower, we look at those who are lower than us. And it's not just you're lower monetarily. It's, it's you're lower than me. It happens so fast. Similarly, we look at those who have more than us, and we look at them with disdain and say, look at all their stuff. But don't you see that? Money still has power over us in those circumstances. The way in which, in which we have, in what lens we have, and how we perceive reality affects our heart towards those people. This, this feeling of superiority, um, it's hard. So if you're not tracking the right, then I don't deal with the significance of that's not me, I don't, that's not my thing. Try this on precise. What about your security? While some of us use money for approval of others, others use it for control. The feeling that if you had X amount of dollars, you'd be able to achieve control in an uncontrollable world. How many of us have spent an inordinate amount of time, uh, time thinking about and money investing in a certain lifestyle that we desire? How many of us face insecurity of life by building up a soft, comfortable padding that will keep us at arm's length so us and our families can be safe? A darkened eye leads to a darkened heart and affects the way we view our surroundings. So to recap, money darkens our eye by functioning as our significance and our security. A darkened eye 
leads to a darkened heart. So I'm going to work this back through in case this is too, in case I'm not doing a good job. Last one, the gut punch. Money has power. Jesus recognizes that. Number two, how money has power. Money changes our perception of our world, how much mercy we've been given, and it affects our heart. It affects how we view others. So what if I were to just end there? No, that would be good. That would be bad. How Jesus frees us. In, in chapters number 19 through 21, guys, I believe that Jesus gives us, gives us the answer. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moss and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the wording question, everybody's thinking, what does treasure? What is this treasure? Common misconception that I had to untake when I first read this, I thought when we build up treasures on earth, we would gain monetary things here, but when we are super good little people on earth, all the good things get placed in heaven, and they're much cooler than the ones that are on earth. And I know that sounds crazy, but I, and, and, and there's no shame. Like, that's just what I thought. I thought I was like, oh, God's preparing a room for me. And the more I, I suffer here on earth, when I get to heaven, it's going to be like a room with all my favorite things. There's going to be that uh, Buck Hunter game in it. There's going to be um, ski ball, mostly carnival games, I guess, are going to be in this room that are in heaven. But I want to push back against that a little bit. That's, that's not what Jesus is talking about. So I would like to just pose a question, what is treasure? We know what treasure is, but it's not the same. It's, it's not what, what I, at least I was thinking of when I read this. At the center of our souls, there is something that we treasure. To treasure something means you look at it and you fill your heart with its value and the beauty of it. To treasure something is to say, if I have this one thing, whatever it is for us guys, it could be a career, it could be a relationship, it could be a plethora of things, but if I have this one thing, it's all worth it. If I have this one thing, then I am worth it. You guys know what this is? Know what that is? Anybody? Lord of the Rings? Yep, we got one. We got a couple fans in here. I can't say I'm like a fanatic about it, but I've seen the movie. For those of you who hadn't, per the title, there is a thing in the movie. It's a ring. This ring, whoever has it, comes under its power. It encapsulates them. If you guys, for the fans, I was going to put Smeagol up there, but he's too disturbing to put in church. <laughs> so this is the one you're getting. But for those of you who, who've seen the movie, you understand that as soon as somebody has this, it's all that they are. And their whole being gets wrapped up in the possession of this ring. And it's called the precious. Everybody, guys, we have the precious. I don't know what it is, but something that you guys are looking at and say, if I have this, then I am significant. If I have this, then I am secure. And once your soul treasures something, you will pay any price to get it. You, because that is the only thing that is worth. Now, the Bible says that any treasure but Jesus will insist that you die for it. But Jesus is the one treasure that died for you. 
Anything else you make your supreme value, it will say, die for me. But Jesus is the one treasure that said, I die for you. Well, great, Ben. How can I treasure Jesus? Guys, think about what he did for us. He had the ultimate treasure. He was Lord. He had the ultimate security and the ultimate significance. He was the son of the Father. But when he came to earth, what happened to him? He was utterly stripped, not of his possessions and everything he owned, but that was just a mere echo of how he was spiritually stripped. He lost all of his treasure, but why? Why would Jesus do this? For you only die for what is which you're precious. What all of this means is that Christ must have looked at us and said, if I have them, then going to hell would be worth it. In Isaiah 53, 11, it says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and shall bear their iniquities. In 1 Peter 2, 9, it says, but you, talking to Christians, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Guys, what this means is that you are his treasure. Unless you know that Jesus Christ was willing to lose all of his treasure so that you could become his treasure, unless you realize that he looked towards you as there would be nothing that there'd be nothing that could stop him, nothing could withhold him, that you guys were worth, we were worth anything to save us. If you know that he treasures you, if you know he cares for you like that, that and that alone will absolutely free you from the love of money. Not only money, everything. If we can truly sit in the reality. Do you guys see what this means? To the, to the level which we understand how much we have been forgiven is the amount to which we'll be able to forgive. The amount to which we are loved is the same level to which we can love. Once we understand this, we no longer look down our nose to those who are less worthy than or less, less rich monetarily. We look at them with respect. We realize that these are people we can learn something from. We look at those who are richer than us. We don't have disdain. We don't look at them at, oh, how dare they? We look at them as co-heirs. The darkened eye that used to see this totem pole of reality is split in looking at people and darkening our hearts. That's gone. We have a healthy eye that's able to look around us. We look into our community, our church, our family, seeking opportunities to give. How could we not? How could we not? I'm going to begin to land this plane. In high school, I was recruited by the Badgers. They sent me... Uh, they came up to me, they sent me a letter, uh, and they were recruiting me. So they sent me this little piece of paper. I didn't want to find it. That'd be weird. Um, and I signed on that piece of paper. And I, signed my, I said, I'm a badger. Now, what, that, what I did not do with this piece of paper, that I don't truly know where it is, is I did not go around for the next four years and say, hey, look, I'm a badger. I did it. That would be weird on so many levels. I took that as just the beginning step from when I moved down to Madison. And I had so much fun training, competing, 
on a team. It was incredible. It really was. My fear for us and the fear that I see in my own life is that us as Christians, we understand the Sermon on the Mount now. We say, all right, I'm being invited. Guys, you're being recruited to be a part of a kingdom. But many of us, we sign the paper and we go, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Guys, we need to take residency in this kingdom we're being invited to. Jesus is saying, hey, this is how you live. This is how you know that your life has been so radically transformed by this message that you can live your life in a completely radical way. Guys, you're not going to get from this step here to signing the Christian thing and just go here by sheer willpower and being a good little person. We need to get motivated by the cross. So today there could be a point where it's, it's the challenge of, okay, now go take $100 and do this. I don't have that today. I'm, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to force you to do something. But if I could just challenge you guys to be still today and focus on the fact that you are his treasure. What does that mean? And how will we respond to that? Let me pray. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for establishing a new kingdom that you've invited us to. Lord, the complexity of why we would even be recruited to your kingdom is that's for another day. But Lord, we thank you so much for loving us, for sending Jesus that gives us the ability and the power to free ourselves from the chains and the shackles of money and to live a life that screams generosity because we realize how generous you've been to us. Lord, I thank you for this day. I ask you for stillness and rest and that we could take some time and just medit meditate on what this truly means. Not be so focused on actions and mean good little children of God, but just truly sitting in what it means to be yours. I pray these things in Jesus' name.